on our Walk by Faith 2019 conference, uh, the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 come to mind where he expresses his longing for the faithful believers in Rome and he says, I I long to be with you so that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And uh, I feel that way very much, that I have been encouraged by your faith. I have not just come to give, but I have come to receive. And uh, God has poured out much blessing in my own soul as I've spent time with you. Uh, I've been encouraged by how so many of you have welcomed me. Um, I have felt welcomed into your church family as many of you have come up to me to encourage me after messages and welcomed me into your homes to share a meal. Um, Your hospitality and uh, love for the saints um, has been evident, and I'm thankful that I had the chance to experience that. I'm also thankful for your evident love for the Word of God. This has been a lot of teaching, you know, over the last couple days, and including this morning. Um, A lot of listening attentively, a lot of hard study, a lot of note-taking, a lot of application, a lot of heart conviction, a lot of responding by faith, and um, so many of you have uh, sat through it all and uh, not only endured it, but sat forward at the edge of your seats with eager anticipation to receive the implanted word with meekness. Um, I'm also encouraged by how uh, so many of you have responded to your new pastor with faith. Those who have spoken to me about him have, have intentionally honored him and expressed gratitude to God for him. Um, that is not easy, especially when you're talking about a new pastor who is a young man. I can relate to that as a young man myself who is not only young, but uh, I'm an Asian young man, and so I, I look exceptionally young, and I always will until I'm on my deathbed. Um, now, Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth, and I responded to that command by having as many children as I have so that no one can say that I'm 18 years old anymore. It's biologically impossible for me to be 18 and yet have five kids. I guess maybe not, um, but let's, let's not do the math. Um, yeah, five kids, seven and under, I miss them dearly, um, but I will bring to them and to my church back home a encouraging report of what God is doing here in the northern outpost of civilization. <laughs> really been blessed by our time together. Well, as I, after I arrived on Friday evening um, to, um, to Brad and Shannon's house, they hosted me for the weekend. Um, I asked Brad what he wanted me to preach on um, on Sunday morning. And uh, I told him that I've been going through a short mini-series at my local church on reading the Bible, just, you know, the fundamentals of what it means to read the Bible, how to read the Bible well, not just how to read the Bible more, but how to read the Bible well. I recognize that, you know, for many of us, you know, this, this meeting on Sunday mornings is our spiritual sustenance, um, but we continue to feast on the Word of God throughout the week in our own private devotions. Private devotions is such a crucial part of spiritual flourishing, and yet I, I feel like we, we may in part have a deficiency in teaching and guidance on what private devotions are meant to look like. What's the purpose? 
How do we prepare our hearts to engage with the Lord in the context of our private devotions? And that's, that's, that was the motivator for why I've taken my church through this series, is to help the, my people to read the Bible well um, as they are meeting with the Lord throughout the week. So I went through a variety of different topics I've touched on with my church with Brad, and um, he selected this one. So that's what brings me to preach this particular sermon to you this morning. By the way, I need to add that I've never preached two services consecutively. Uh, In fact, my church meets on Sunday afternoons because we rent a church building, and they meet in the morning, we meet in the afternoon. So I am not used to engaging at this level of cognitive function as I have to right now, and now I have to do it twice. So I labor with the strength that God supplies and with the reliance on his grace and the empowerment of his Holy Spirit, um, trusting that it is not my words that will feed your souls. It is God's word, and therefore we can have confidence that he will work in us this morning. So I wonder if uh, some of you have gone through seasons in your walk with the Lord when you have opened the Bible daily, perhaps, maybe weekly, as a discipline, but you have constantly found that those times in the Word have been largely unfruitful. Or if we use the vernacular, they were boring. Times when the Word didn't seem to be speaking to you very much. I mean, I think if you're a Christian, you've experienced times when It seems like every word in the scriptures is speaking directly into your heart, where the Lord is directing you to certain verses and chapters, and you're being blessed. You're walking with the Lord as you read through scripture. But if you've been walking with the Lord for some time, and I just mean, you know, more than six months, you know, you'll know that there have been seasons where you're spiritually dry, and the word doesn't seem to be affecting you, and you're walking through the valley And you're not sure why you're doing what you're doing. You do it because you know it's right, but you don't do it because you're necessarily looking forward to it. Um, What are we to do when we find ourselves in that season? Do we just kind of wait it out? Um, Do we ask people to pray for us? Do we just push through and persevere? I think those are all good things. But today I want to give you some practical tools for how to work through that theologically, to remind yourself of certain fundamental truths that will aid you in fighting for joy and faith and pushing through those seasons of dryness. So what I'm going to talk about is not primarily, actually not at all, I'm not going to be talking about Bible study techniques. I'm not here to give you a lecture on hermeneutics, on grammar or syntax or sentence structure or anything like that. Those are helpful tools. We need those tools to dig into the word and to find the hidden treasure that the scriptures reveal to us as we apply the fullness of our mind's exertion to studying the word. But that's, that's not sufficient. That's not sufficient. All around the world, there are Bible scholars who devote their entire lives to the study of the scriptures, and yet they don't know Christ. That was true of the Pharisees. We need something more than Bible reading tools. We want to try to answer the question of what, what should be the posture of our hearts as we open up the Word of God. Do we just pick up the Bible and start reading? 
Or are there truths that are helpful for us to be reminded of and be affected by so that we can truly behold God's glory and be affected by it the way that we should? A couple of years ago, John Piper was speaking at my denomination's annual pastor's conference. During an interview with C.J. Mahaney, the founder of our movement, C.J. asked John Piper about a trilogy of books he was working on at the time that all had to do with the Bible. You may be aware of some of them. The first one's called A Peculiar Glory. The second one's called Reading the Bible Supernaturally. And the third one's called Expository Exaltation. C.J. asked John Piper this question. He said, John, why are you writing these books? And why now? And Piper's answer was essentially that as he got older, he thought more about the kind of legacy he wanted to leave. What would be the most fruitful way of using these last years of his life to equip the church to walk faithfully with the Lord in sound doctrine and in a fiery passion for Christ. And he said something like this. He said, if you have a Bible, God can raise up a Martin Luther. If you take away the Bible and just leave Calvinistic deposit, it's all going to blow away quickly. When I heard him say that, I realized that here is a man who believes that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So Earlier this year, I spent some time reading parts of this trilogy of books about the Bible. And uh, in his second book, Reading the Bible Supernaturally, he writes this. It seems to me that thousands of people approach the Bible with little sense of their own helplessness in reading the way God wants them to. If more people approach the Bible with a deep sense of helplessness and hope-filled reliance on God's merciful assistance, there will be far more seeing and savoring and transformation than there is. Piper's getting at something very fundamental. This is what we're going to be talking about this morning. He talks about this merciful assistance from God that is designed and given to us graciously by our God to open up the truth and beauty of the scriptures to us. And that merciful assistance is none other than the Holy Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, he is the one sent by God to mercifully assist us in the reading and understanding and enjoying of the truths of Scripture. Jesus said in John chapter 14 that the Spirit would be the one to teach us all things. The Spirit is the one who enables us to read the Bible supernaturally because it is only through His supernatural help that we can truly behold God's glory and be transformed by it. So if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll be reading a number of verses there as our text today for the sermon. We're going, to be spending, we're going to be looking at some pretty detailed elements of this passage, so I, I strongly encourage you to open up and to follow along with me as we work our way through this text. I'll be reading today from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. This is the word of the Lord. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age we are, who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. 
None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The title of this sermon is How the Spirit Helps Us Read Scripture. My aim today is to show you that only the Spirit can turn Bible reading into worship. Only the Spirit can turn Bible reading into worship. We're going to be working through some difficult textual questions as we read our text and we try to understand what Paul is trying to say here and why he is writing this for us. But it's all aimed to this one objective of proving to you from this passage that only the Spirit can turn Bible reading into worship. We're going to have three points today. First, the wisdom of Scripture. Second, the understanding of Scripture. And third, the revelation of Scripture. The wisdom, the understanding, and the revelation of Scripture. The were of Scripture. I just noticed that. Wow. There's there's your acronym to help you remember. The were of Scripture. First point, the wisdom of Scripture. Paul begins this text in verse 6 by saying, Yet, among the mature... We do impart wisdom. Now, at first glance, we would just read that out of context. Just looking at what he's saying in this verse, we we might infer that he's talking about mature Christians and immature Christians. And the mature Christians are the ones who get this wisdom that he wants to impart. The immature ones, unfortunately, do not. There is some wisdom that is reserved for a certain level of Christian maturity that he has come to impart. But when we look at the context, starting back in the beginning of the letter, and we understand it's the purposes of why Paul's writing, it's going to be clear that that is not what he means. So we want to understand what wisdom he's talking about in verse 6, who he's talking about when he refers to as the mature, and why he begins verse 6 with the word yet. You know, what is he responding to in what he has already said before verse 6, that he is now writing about and filling out in verses 6 and following. Well, in this letter, Paul is writing to a church that was characterized by a passionate pursuit of wisdom, or at least worldly wisdom. The Corinthians were the kinds of people who we would call bigwigs or eggheads. You know, they loved knowledge for knowledge's sake. You know, a lot of us, when we think about study, You know, we think about it as a means to an end. It's meant to give us tools to have practical skills so that we can make money and provide for our families, etc. They they saw knowledge as an end in itself. 
And so, the biggest celebrities in Corinth weren't actors or singers like they are today. They were philosophers. In Corinth, you didn't become famous because of your good looks or your artistic talent. You became famous because of the power of your words. I think in some ways you could say that certain elements of our culture are returning to that. You think about the celebrity and fame of a Jordan Peterson, you know, an academic celebrity who people are gravitating to because of the power of his words. In some ways, you could say our culture is returning to a Corinthian-type culture. If you were a good speaker, people from all over the city would come listen to you in their spare time for entertainment. And if that person captivated you with their words, then you could become wealthy, rich, and famous. You think about Jordan Peterson, again, his YouTube channel with millions of subscribers. People watch his videos, his debates, his statements, his media uh, appearances for entertainment. The problem in Corinth, however, and it remains a problem today, was that not everyone would agree on who had the best ideas and who was the most eloquent speaker. We might think, well, you know, who cares? You know, it, this isn't really a big deal. But, th- but this was important. It was, this was so important to them that they were willing to divide over it. A good analogy, I think, would be um, thinking about the world of sports rivalries. We might say that you can't be a good Canadian if you're not a Leafs fan, right? Who's, who would say that with me? You know, Julian, by the way, you should know, he's a Montreal Canadiens fan, so you must not welcome him with the same warmth that you would welcome me, all right? Don't tell him I said that. No, he is, he is a Canadians fan, but he is a very, very sorry Canadians fan these days. <clears throat> well, when we talk about sports rivalries, the, you know, the, the fans of the one sports team, they rally around the one team, and, and then the fans of the other team rally around the other team, and there's, there's some vitriol between the two camps. There's division maybe even anger, and maybe even hatred in extreme cases. This is the kind of thinking, sadly, that it seeped into the Corinthian church. What was happening was that people were treating the apostles as philosophers. They had their favorites. They had their, uh, the, the people that they were rallying around and dividing over. Some people followed Peter, you know, the, the fisherman who rose up from the the blue-collar society to become, you know, this eloquent defender of the faith. Others, maybe the white-collar, the intelligentsia, favored Paul, the scholar, the refined speaker. They said, I follow Peter. No, we follow Paul, and you're wrong if you follow Paul, or you're wrong if you follow Peter. And others, the truly pious, said, well, it's not about the apostles. It's about following Jesus. Let's forget about the apostles. We are followers of Jesus. In other words, they were treating Christianity as if it were a fragmented collection of philosophers where they could pick and choose which ones they liked and which ones they didn't. That's what Paul is responding to in chapter 1. He's responding to this tendency in the Corinthian church to divide over the wisdom and eloquence of the speakers and the defenders of Christianity. But Paul says, in effect, you've got it all wrong. The heart of Christianity is not eloquence. It's not the quality of your speech. The heart of Christianity is the cross. It's not about how well you can speak or how much you know or how much people like listening to you. It is about a bloody Savior hanging on a bloody cross for sinners like you and me. And that message, Paul says, is foolishness. 
when it is assessed by the standards of worldly wisdom. It makes no sense to the philosophers of this age that God himself would become man to die as a substitute for sinners. If the Corinthians were going to apply worldly criteria to evaluate this heavenly message, then their conclusion couldn't be that Christianity was the hottest idea of the day, but that it was the most ridiculous one. Something more than worldly criteria would be needed to truly grasp and cherish the gospel. We're going to see that a little later on, what that something more would be. But what we see at the beginning of chapter 2 is that Paul decided that this something more wouldn't be his eloquence or wisdom. In verses 1 to 5, Paul explains that he chose not to come to the Corinthians with lofty speech or wisdom. He certainly could have. Paul was a powerful rhetorician, an eloquent speaker. We see that um, in the way that he wrote his letters, the power of his words and the almost poetic form of his writing. We see it in the sermons that are recorded for us in the book of Acts, where Paul is preaching the gospel before the authorities of the world, before kings and emperors who are compelled by his speech. And yet, as he comes to this group of bigwigs and eggheads in Corinth, he decides to put all that aside. I did not come to you with lofty speech or wisdom. Instead, he writes, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now we're in a better position to understand what Paul is talking about in verse 6. When he writes, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. What he's saying is, I haven't come to bring worldly wisdom, the kind of wisdom that you're used to getting from Stoics and Platonists and followers of Socrates. I haven't come to bring you another version or iteration of that. I've come to bring you heavenly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom that doesn't have its origins in this world or in the minds of human beings. It has its origin with God. Verse 7, it is a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. What What is this wisdom then, Paul? This secret and hidden wisdom of God that is unlike any wisdom of this age, that passing wisdom that is going to go down the the storyline of history as just chaff. What is this secret and hidden wisdom? It seems intriguing, doesn't it? We want to know what it is because as he writes in verse 7, this secret and hidden wisdom of God was decreed before the ages for our glory. There's something glorious about this. There's some, there's some way that we're going to be transformed into glorious beings as God invites us into his glory to share in it and to reflect it to his glory alone. What is this wisdom? Well, we get a clue when Paul says in verse 8 that none of the rulers of this age understood this secret and hidden wisdom of God. None of the rulers of this age understood it. And therefore, they didn't receive God's glory. Who are the rulers? Who is he talking about here? Well, the rulers here clearly refers to the Jewish leaders. And we know that because of what Paul says in the second half of the verse, 
where he says they didn't understand it because if they did, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And who was it who crucified the Lord of glory? It was the Jews, led by the Jewish leaders. So when Paul says in verse 8 that none of the rulers of this age understood this, he's saying that the Jews didn't understand it. And when he says, if they had, if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The implication here is that they should have, but they didn't. And that means, like, if they should have understood it, but didn't, it means that they already had it. They just didn't see it. In other words, he's talking about the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures. The Jews had the scriptures, but they didn't understand them. They didn't understand how they revealed the wisdom of God. Because if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So when Paul says in verse 6 that among the mature, we do impart wisdom, he's not talking about mystical knowledge that he received in a dream. He's talking about a right understanding of the scriptures. And he's imparting this wisdom, this right understanding of the scriptures to the mature, which clearly now refers to every Christian. The mature are the Christians, and the immature are those who have not yet put their faith in Christ. Paul imparts this secret and hidden wisdom of God, this right interpretation of the scriptures, the revelation of God's eternal plan of redemption to believers. Now we understand what this secret and hidden wisdom is, right? The right interpretation of the scriptures that the Jews missed It is Christ and him crucified. The cross is the revelation of the secret and hidden wisdom of God. The cross is the center of God's eternal plans of salvation. It may have lain hidden and unknown for a time from Jewish minds and hearts, but now through the apostles, it had become fully known. The cross is the ultimate display of God's perfect divine wisdom. And it doesn't need to be adorned with eloquent words for its power to be known and experienced and for its wisdom to be, to be displayed. It stands glorious and beautiful on its own. And that is why Paul said earlier in chapter 1, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. This was Paul's purpose in life. This is what he devoted all of his time and energy and ultimately his actual life as he executed for his testimony for Christ. He lived to testify to Christ and him crucified. And that is how, therefore, we must read Paul. Anytime we open the scriptures and we read the letters that he wrote to these various ancient churches, if we were to honor Paul's legacy and get to what his real intent was in writing these letters, we must see Christ crucified. That's really true of all the other books of the Bible as well. We must read to behold God's glorious wisdom on full display in the cross. The cross is the wisdom of God. It's the wisdom of the scriptures. It doesn't matter if you're reading Genesis or Revelation. Every truth contained in the eternal word of God is meant to point us to the crucifixion of Christ. This must be our aim every time we read the Bible. 
You know, if we're just reading to gain some biblical data, then we have missed the point. We must read to behold Christ. And that must be the pastor's aim every time he opens up the scriptures and teaches them and exhorts you from them. To be faithful, he must point you to Christ and him crucified. I thank God that he has blessed Fort William Baptist Church with faithful pastors over the years who have done exactly that. I had the privilege of meeting Kevin Dibley, your former pastor, just a few weeks ago. Julian and I and a number of other churches in the GTA annually organize a young adults retreat in January or February of the new year. And uh, this year we invited Kevin to be our conference speaker. We flew him up from Minneapolis and he did a tremendous job feeding my soul and feeding the souls of the young adults from my church in exhorting them and showing them the beauty of Christ crucified. And I thank God that he has blessed you now after a five-year pastoral search with a man who shares the exact same convictions. If a man were up here with the Bible open, giving you morals and life lessons that make you feel better about yourself, if he does not point you to Christ crucified, he is not a faithful preacher of the word. But God has shown you, Fort William Baptist Church, much kindness and mercy in blessing you with faithful men who have not missed this message. So the gospel is the wisdom of scripture. But what does it mean to understand that wisdom? Is it just a matter of intellectual assent of gathering gospel facts, or is there something else, something more? This leads to our second point, the understanding of Scripture. Paul writes in verse 8 that none of the rulers, that is the Jewish leaders, none of the rulers of this age understood this. They didn't understand that the cross was the center of God's wise plans of salvation. When he writes that in verse 8, it's actually quite clear that he's speaking at this time at least, about ignorance. As we're going to see later in the text, that's not all he's speaking about. But when it came to the Jewish leaders, their lack of understanding started with ignorance. And that's because they lived at a time when the wisdom of the cross was still, as verse 7 tells us, uh, still the secret and hidden wisdom of God. It's hidden. It's secret. God hasn't revealed it yet. God hasn't let the cat out of the bag yet. Now, for the Christian, we understand that the gospel is present in every page of Scripture, including the Old Testament. That's because we stand on this side of the cross, where we have the benefit of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the apostles teaching us about what the significance of Christ's life, death, and resurrection is for us. We know that everything we find in the New Testament articulation of the gospel is first found in the Old Testament. It may be found in seed form, but it's there, and that's true. We saw that on Friday night for those who were at our first session when we looked at Genesis 3, where God promises that a seed of Eve would crush the serpent's head. That was a proto-gospel. We see it again in Deuteronomy 18, where God is promising a prophet like Moses who would speak 
the words of God. We, we see it again in 2 Samuel 7 when he promises David that a descendant of his would reign on the throne of David forever in an everlasting kingdom of righteousness. We see God's plans of redemption from beginning to end of the Bible because we are on this side of the cross. But on the other side of the cross, the people who had the scriptures, but they haven't had the benefits of all the teaching that we have, they would read the scriptures as if they had poor vision. They could see vague outlines and blurred images of what was truly there, but they couldn't see any of it clearly. But when Jesus came and he taught and he pointed people to himself by reasoning through the scriptures, and when he commissioned the apostles to do the same, what was once blurry would come into crystal clear focus. It was as if he gave them a pair of glasses to be able to see what they couldn't see before. In other words, you could say this. The gospel isn't just prophecy fulfilled. It is mystery revealed. It's not just prophecy fulfilled. It is mystery revealed. Only when the mystery of the gospel is revealed can one see that the prophecy has been fulfilled. D.A. Carson helpfully points out that Paul recognizes this in Romans chapter 16, where he, said, he talks about the gospel being the revelation of the mystery. And then he says it's been disclosed through the prophetic writings that have been made known to all nations. There is revelation of the mystery that leads to an understanding of the fulfillment of prophecy, pointing to Christ crucified. So when Paul says that Jewish rulers didn't understand the gospel in verse 8, he's saying that it was due, at least in part, to ignorance. So he quotes Isaiah chapter 64 in verse 9, but no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has imagined, what? The gospel, even though it was there in the scriptures all along. So true understanding of the gospel must begin with the facts of the gospel. Okay? We, can't, we don't want to miss that point. We do need to convey the facts of the gospel if we're going to see true understanding of the gospel. What Jesus did and why he did it and why it matters for us today. But as you may have guessed... There's more to the biblical concept of understanding than knowledge of facts. In verse 14, Paul moves beyond the Jewish rulers and starts speaking more generically about the natural person. The natural person. This refers to the uh, Jewish rulers, but it doesn't just refer to the Jewish rulers. It refers to anyone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. They're natural people because they're unspiritual people. Now, when we use that terminology of spiritual people, unspiritual people, we usually say, well, anyone who has an interest in spiritual things, you know, asking questions about God, about the transcendent, about the unseen, they're spiritual people. That's, that's not how Paul is using that terminology. He's saying those who are spiritual people have the spirit of God. So those who don't have the Holy Spirit are those who are not Christians. Anyone who is not a Christian, that's who he's referring to as the natural person. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, even if we are Christians, we recognize that sometimes we function as natural people, or we've quenched the spirit because of our sin, or we have failed to humbly cry out to God for the filling of the Holy Spirit. There are times when we can function as natural people, and if we read ahead to chapter 3, Paul actually turns to the Corinthians and says, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. They were Christians, but they were functioning naturally. It's 
So in verse 14, as Paul is talking about the natural person, what, is he, what, what, what he is saying is this. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to, notice this again, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So Paul is using the word understand again, just like he did in verse 8, when he said none of the rulers of this age understood this. The main difference is that the problem here in verse 14 isn't ignorance. It's acceptance. He says the natural person does not accept. The natural person does not welcome, receive, believe the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they are folly to him. You notice that? Because they are folly to him. The natural person hears the gospel and understands it in the sense that he grasps, he grasps what the message is about, at least on this side of the cross. But he casts it aside like a piece of trash because it is worthless to him. It is foolishness to him. The natural person, just like all of us, wants something attractive and life-giving and life-changing. He wants, we want something that is wise, but he doesn't find it in the gospel. He only finds folly. That's why he doesn't accept it. That's why he rejects it. Paul says that is not true understanding. The natural person does not understand them. And so... True understanding isn't just a matter of the mind. It is a matter of the heart. You don't understand the gospel in the biblical sense if the gospel is worthless to you. You don't understand it if it is foolishness to you. It doesn't matter if you can state a bunch of true facts about the gospel. Because guess what? Demons can do that. They even believe them. But they don't rejoice in them. If you don't cherish the facts of the gospel, if they don't bring you joy, if you don't treasure them above everything else in your life, everything else in this world, then you don't truly understand the gospel. And that is why whenever we open our Bibles, we do not just read to gather biblical data, though it certainly includes that. We also don't just read to see how different portions of scripture point to Jesus, though we certainly do that as well. We read to behold the glory of Christ, and to bask in that glory as he changes us and affects our hearts and we respond with worship. That's what true understanding looks like. That leads us to one final question. Where does this understanding come from? Do we summon it by our own exercise of willpower? Or does it have some other cause where do these affections come from? Well, the answer is found in our last point, the revelation of Scripture. Paul makes it overwhelmingly clear. This is the answer to the question. Where does true understanding come from? He makes it overwhelmingly clear that this true understanding of the gospel comes from one source and one source alone. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can awaken our affections for God. If we were to feel any love for God... It's because the Holy Spirit is working in our lives. If you have felt affections for God, it is because the Holy Spirit has awakened your heart to the glories of God in the face of Christ. If the gospel is to bring any joy and comfort and delight to our hearts, we need the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul says this over and over again in our text, starting in verse 10. He says, These things 
meaning the secret and hidden wisdom of God that none of the rulers of this age understood, uh, namely the gospel, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. God has revealed these secret and hidden things through the Spirit. Now, at this point, Paul is still talking about the problem of ignorance. The facts of the gospel were hidden until the Spirit revealed the beauty and truth and reality of those facts to the apostles, including Paul. That is why Paul says in verse 13 that we impart this, the gospel, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Only the Spirit could reveal God's secret and hidden wisdom because only God knows what is secret. It would need God to disclose what only He knew, and that's why it needed to be the Holy Spirit. Only the Spirit knows the thoughts of God, and therefore only the Spirit could reveal His hidden thoughts to man. That's the ignorance problem. But then Paul takes the work of the Spirit a step further in verse 13, where he says that he imparts the gospel, listen to this, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to who? To those who are spiritual. To those who, are, who have the Holy Spirit. To those who are moved in and through by the Holy Spirit. So when Paul says in verse 13 that he interprets spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, he's saying that only those who have the Holy Spirit can truly understand the gospel. At this point, it's clear that Paul is no longer talking about comprehension because anyone can comprehend the gospel. Anyone can intellectually assent to true gospel facts. As Paul said in verse 14, the natural person, the person without the Spirit, can comprehend them, but he doesn't accept them because they are foolishness. They are folly to him. Why is that? Because they are spiritually discerned. That's what he says in verse 14. These truths are spiritually discerned. In other words, only the Spirit can grant us the discernment to hear the gospel and see it not as worthless and foolish, but as supremely precious. Only the Spirit can awaken affections for God. So that when we read the Bible and we see how it points to Jesus, we don't just respond with indifference or boredom, but with delight, with worship. The natural person does not read the Bible like this. The natural person cannot read the Bible like this. What the Christian sees as infinitely valuable, the natural person sees as foolish and worthless. But this does not affect the spiritual person. The opinion of the natural person does not shake the confidence of the one who has the Holy Spirit working in his life in believing that the gospel is the supreme treasure of all of life. Or as Paul puts it in verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. And that is because of what Paul says in verse 16. We, the spirit-filled believer, have the mind of Christ. We think Christ's thoughts about his life, death, and resurrection and see them as the ultimate fulfillment of God's redemptive plans. This is why John Piper says that we must read the Bible supernaturally. Only the supernatural work of the spirit, and it is supernatural because it's divine, it's God-given. He's bringing dead things to life. He's softening, hardening, hardened hearts. 
Only the supernatural work of the Spirit in our hearts can enable us to read the Bible with a heart of worship for who God is and what he has done to save sinners like us. That's how God wants us to read the Scriptures. That's how we must read them if they are to be of any benefit to us. That is why we need the Holy Spirit. We need him to grant us this true understanding so that we respond to the wisdom of the gospel with delight rather than seeing it as folly. And whenever the Spirit opens our eyes to actually respond like that, we ought to give thanks to the Spirit for this incredible gift. As D.A. Carson wrote, D.A. Carson, who apparently is not a hugger, or at least doesn't like hugs from Deb, He says, if we should express unqualified gratitude to God for the gift of his Son, we should express no less gratitude to God for the gift of the Spirit who enables us to grasp, understand, in the biblical Pauline sense, the gospel of his Son. So as we close our time together, I want to acknowledge that we've looked at a lot of theology. This has been hard digging. We've been answering a lot of questions about the text and trying to come to an understanding of it, but as we know, I'm sure you know, the, the, the application of sound doctrine is sound practice. This teaching about the Holy Spirit's role in our Bible reading is eminently practical. It's meant to completely and dramatically change the way that we read our Bibles, whether we're reading at home, by ourselves, or together on a Sunday morning like we are today. Let me give you an analogy. We all know that when we start exercising, we need to stretch our muscles. We need to get the blood flowing, especially to the muscles you're going to be using the most as you exercise. If you don't stretch, your exercise is going to be painful. You're going to feel it afterwards and maybe even days after if you're like me, and uh, and it's not going to be pleasant. The other danger about not stretching before exercise is that it could be dangerous to you. You could pull a muscle, you could twist your ankle, you could hurt yourself. The same is true of Bible reading. Before we start reading, we need to stretch our spiritual muscles by reminding us ourselves of certain truths, including this truth. This isn't the only one, but this truth is an important one, this truth that we need the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. We need to cry out to God for the gift of the Spirit so that we do not respond to his word with indifference, but with love and affection, treasuring Christ as our supreme treasure. If we don't, then Bible reading can become a painful experience. It can even be dangerous. It is a dangerous thing to read the Bible with indifference. Because when you start reading the Bible with indifference, you begin to believe that it is irrelevant. And when you believe that the Bible is irrelevant, you're going to start looking to worldly wisdom to guide you instead of heavenly wisdom. We need the Spirit desperately to reveal to us the wonder and wisdom of the cross. That is why we need to pray before we open our Bibles at home, before we open our Bibles corporately in corporate worship, before you come to church, before you listen to a sermon, you need to stretch your spiritual muscles by praying. Acknowledge your need for the Spirit. 
Confess your lack of love for God's word. Ask for the Holy Spirit's work in your life and in your heart to lead you to a greater love for God as he has revealed himself to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when God answers those prayers, and he will, because this is his will for you, that you delight in his son and glorify his name through that delight, let us give thanks to the Spirit. Let us acknowledge that the Spirit is the one who is working in our hearts to awaken those affections. You know, the Spirit is a controversial topic in different church circles about the spiritual gifts, about you know, miraculous gifts of healing and speaking in tongues and things like that. But you know, aside from all of that, I think we can all agree that this work of the Spirit is the primary one to awaken our hearts, to respond to the gospel with faith and with delight. May the Holy Spirit do this work among us, both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your Son to take on human flesh and to be obedient to your will, which was to crush him for our iniquities. We thank you, Father, for the gift of Jesus Christ who is willing to lay down his life of his own accord to die for his enemies. And we thank you, Father, for the gift of the Holy Spirit who stokes the embers of our hearts to respond to Christ crucified with a fiery passion. I pray, Father, that that may be our testimony. Even during the dry seasons, when we don't feel your presence, when we are tempted to believe that the Bible is irrelevant or boring, remind us, Father, of this truth that we need the Holy Spirit. We need a divine touch of power to awaken our hearts once more to the glories of the cross. We entrust ourselves to you. Now may you persevere our faith and lead us to the very end that we may rejoice and be glad in you all our days. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.